We're going to spend time together as a church family in prayer. Um, lots going on, in the, of course, in our world today and, and in our country. Um, the latest shootings out in California have affected our church family. The, uh, Patty Spencer, one of her relatives, was killed, a 21-year-old. So we want to just, you know, be mindful of those things. So would you join me in prayer? Father, you are a good, good father. And all that you do is good. And Lord, yet you've allowed in this world of yours that you created perfect with the intent of fellowship with you has been so broken by sin. And we see the effects of that all around us. And Lord, we pray for those who are grappling with what's just happened again out in California. We, we pray for families that are affected. We pray for your comfort and encouragement. Lord, would you bring good out of this? For however you do that by your Holy Spirit, would you comfort and encourage? Would Christians, your people, come alongside those suffering and bring a sense of hope to them and word of encouragement? Lord, we think of those that are fleeing the fires. We think of other things going on all over our country. Lord, we know that this will be the affairs of our world until you come and set everything right. But in the meantime, may we, your people, your church, continue to be salt and light. May we continue to have a word of hope that this life isn't all that there is. That there is an eternity that awaits all of us. And might we be bearers of the good news of the gospel. That there is a place for us with you, a good, good father. And would you encourage all of us today to uh, praise you for who you are. May we never lose sight in the midst of difficulties. And Lord, I know there are many in our church family that are facing various difficulties with family, work, uh, finances, whatever it might be. But Lord, would you show yourself strong on their behalf? Might this be a time of real spiritual growth as they put their trust in you, knowing that this life is not the definition of total reality. So we pray that you would be at work. And we thank you that you are at work and that you have been at work in our lives for the grace and the salvation that we have in Christ. And because of that, Lord, you call us to be generous people. And as we worship you through our offering this morning, uh, may we do so with hearts overflowing with the grace that you've given to us. Take these gifts, Father. Use them for your kingdom purposes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, when Nancy and I were with the Christian Embassy Ministry, we had Chuck Swindoll uh, come and speak at several of our annual ministry retreats. And on one occasion, he told the following story. It was about two of the great preachers of the 20th century. One was Donald Gray Barnhouse. For the last 33 years of his life, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. The other was Dr. Harold J. Ockengay, who for almost 30 year, 33 years was the pastor of the historic Park Street Church in Boston. Uh, he left the pastorate to become the first president of the newly formed Gordon-Conwell Gordon Seminary. But these two great preachers teamed up for a month-long preaching tour, uh, 30 evenings in a row, uh, a different church every time. And, and the schedule is that one would get up and preach, and then their break was taken, and then they would come back, and the second one would preach. Um, the, Akingay preached a different sermon every night in those 30 nights. Uh, Barnhouse uh, preached the same sermon 
night after night. Now, they would, they would rotate who went first. That's important that you know that. Akinge was just a brilliant man, and he, he decided that he would memorize Barnhouse's sermon that he heard night after boring night. And uh, the last night on the preaching tour was at First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. True story. And uh, it was Akinge's turn to go first. And he got up and he gave Barnhouse's sermon. And it was word for word, illustration for illustration, hand gestures, voice intonation, everything. He finished, he sat down uh, by Barnhouse and looked over and gave him a big smile. They took the break, Barnhouse came back, he got up and he preached an entirely different sermon. When they were walking out of church at the end there, down the aisle, um, Akinge looked at Barnhouse and he said, my, how they loved your sermon tonight. To which Barnhouse replied, not nearly as well as when I preached it here three months ago. Now, some of you have heard me tell that story before, and I chose to tell it again to illustrate a point that I want to make at the outset this morning. Um, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is the most comprehensive teaching on giving in the New Testament. I've spoken often without apology about money and finances and giving. Um, after all, there are more verses in your Bible on wealth and finances and possessions than there are on heaven and hell combined. So, you know, most of those times when I've spoken on giving, I've been in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So here they are again in our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. And wanting to be fair in treating this letter, um, I thought it was important that we would talk about this as well. So we're going to talk about this subject that's important not only to the Apostle Paul, but it's important to you and me. I don't mind reminding you of these principles. I hope you don't mind hearing them again. But when you think about it, money and finances are so much a part of our lives. And just because you're a Christian and maybe been one for many, many, many years doesn't mean you're applying these principles that we're going to be looking at. So it's important that we take another look, a fresh look at them in there. Now, before we begin examining the principles, though, that are here in, in the text, there are two other issues that we must address from this passage. The first is a question. Why does Paul insert these chapters where he does in the letter of 2 Corinthians? In a casual reading, they kind of look out of place. It's kind of like a, a redirect of the things that Paul's been talking about as he's been working with the Corinthian believers in this letter. But I have to tell you, it just isn't the case. Paul's been appealing to these believers in the Corinthian church to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to him. There had been a disciplinary matter in the church that Paul addressed in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And apparently a sizable number of people in the church had turned against Paul, maybe because of that, because of the way that he came down on this, on this brother that was sinning. But they were opposing him and his ministry and rejecting his apostolic authority. And so Paul makes a quick visit, unplanned visit over to Corinth, at which time he's opposed and he's mistreated by believers in the church. So he goes back to Ephesus at that time, his base of operations, and he writes a very harsh letter. Paul calls it a sorrowful letter. We don't have copies of that today. We can only read into what he refers to in 1 and 2 Corinthians of that. 
And in response to this letter that went by the hand of Titus, many of those, probably most of the people in the church that opposed Paul had now repented of that. And in godly sorrow had been brought to restoration in the relationship with Paul. And now they're expressing their affections back to him. And so Titus comes back with this good news to Paul. And then Paul begins to write this letter of 2 Corinthians that is detailing what he feels about now the repentance of the Corinthian Christians. In chapter 7, we saw Paul commending these believers because they'd repented and responded with godly uh, grief. And as a result, they embraced Paul again, and Paul embraces them. But here's what had happened. Their prior rebellion led to a disruption of their taking up of this collection that they'd already committed to help the church in Jerusalem, members of which who were suffering from persecution and probably the effects of the famine in the land. In Paul's earlier letter, he gave these instructions to the church. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul appeals for them to continue what they'd previously begun. Bring to completion, Paul says, what you've started, so that when I come, you're not going to be embarrassed, I'm not going to be embarrassed. So let's go to the text. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1230. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to deal with this chapter today. I'm going to start reading at verse 6. If you'd follow along, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 6. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by your poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Scott Haifman writes, the collection, however, was more than simple charity. It had a profound theological purpose, both for the Corinthians and for the church as a whole. For the Corinthians, it was the means by which God's work of sanctifying grace would continue in their lives. We should also note from the passage that we just read that through this act of giving, that is, giving to the believers in Jerusalem, they would be returning the blessing of the Jews that have come through the blessings of Abraham through the Messiah, Jesus. 
Later, Haifman writes, as a result, the collection illustrates the significance of Paul's theology of grace, both for the individual, having received from God, Christians give to others, and for the life of the church, having been accepted by God, Christians accept one another. So the first issue, this is really intentional that this passage is here where it is in this letter. The second issue that we're going to see in this chapter has to do with the care that the apostle gives to the accountability in handling this collection, this offering that's being given. I'm going to pick up and read at verse 16. Paul says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we're sending our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now Paul was aware of concerns raised by his opponents in Corinth who suspected and accused him of intending to divert this money to his own personal use. And Paul addresses this issue by stating that there are going to be three others, trusted and trustworthy fellows who are going to come along and who are going to care for, manage, and deliver this gift where it was intended. These three all had a high reputation in all the churches so that the Corinthians could be assured that their gift of grace would be safeguarded and delivered to Jerusalem where it's intended. You know, it's so unfortunate and sad in our day that there's such distrust in churches and Christian organizations over the handling of money and finances, financial accountability. Many pastors Church leaders, leaders in Christian organizations have been guilty of mishandling contributions. They're certainly not exempt from the temptation to take what is not theirs for personal gain. An old miser called his doctor, lawyer, and minister to his deathbed. They say that you can take it with you, said the dying man, but I'm going to. I have three envelopes with $100,000 in cash in each one, and I want each of you to take that envelope, and before they close the casket, I want you to slip it into the casket. They all promised to do so. And at the end of the funeral, they did it. On the way home, the conscience-stricken doctor confided, I'm building a clinic. So I took $50,000 and put the rest in the coffin. And then the lawyer confessed, I kept 75000 out for a legal defense and put 25000 in the coffin. At this, the preacher said, gentlemen, I'm ashamed of you. 
I put a check in for the full amount. <laughs> Got to watch those preachers. If you're not aware, we have a financial team here at Knollwood to ensure the proper handling of our monies. Catherine, our bookkeeper, applies best practices in accounting for the contributions and in dispersing our monies. Uh, we have a finance ministry that's comprised of several members of our church who make sure that the guidelines and procedures in our financial policy manual are followed. We also have tellers who count the morning offering, always two of them, on site over in the office so they can reconcile all of the numbers. All disbursements by way of re uh, reimbursements here require the signature of the person requesting the check, the payment. Each then is reviewed and signed by Pastor Allen, our executive pastor. And finally, one of the several check signers um, has to sign off on that reimbursement before signing the checks. No staff member is a check signer. But all of these are built-in checks and balances for the sake of transparency and accountability so that you know we're serious about a stewardship of the monies that you give here at Knollwood. If you have any questions about it, feel free to talk to Pastor Allen or to Brian McNamara, who is our, one of our elders and is the chair of the finance ministry. They would be happy to just give you more details on how we handle our money. Now, here we go to the principles, then, that we have in giving out of the chapters. Uh, Scott Hafman writes, The fact that Paul devotes so much of 2 Corinthians, his letter of restoration and apologetic for the truth, to the issue of the collection should be a sober reminder of the significance of this aspect of our Christian life. Nowhere is our materialism challenged more directly and nowhere do we skirt the issues more often than when it comes to expressing the genuine nature of our faith and the unity of the church through our giving. The first four principles that we want to look at come from the example of the Macedonians. Uh, the believers in these churches, including the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, they lived out these principles and are an amazing example for the Corinthians and for us today. So look at the beginning of the chapter, starting at verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. One writer says of these Christians in a radical role reversal of the world's values, the abundance of their poverty fueled by the riches of their joy in God, led to a wealth of generosity. So what do we see and what do we learn from these generous believers? Let me suggest four things this morning. First, the old principle of stewardship. We talk an awful lot about that here at Knollwood. But Paul says that the Macedonians had first committed themselves to God. This tells me we need to distinguish between ownership and stewardship. 
if we believe the Bible, God is the creator and the owner of everything. David declares in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. God is the owner of everything you are and everything you have if you're a believer here this morning. The Apostle Peter makes a startling statement about this truth in the first letter in the New Testament where he writes this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with costly blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Every believer in Christ has been purchased, bought, redeemed by the costly sacrifice of Christ. I'm not my own, and neither are you. We belong to him. Our status is that of a steward, a manager. And it is a stewardship we have to note that that belongs to every aspect of our lives, uh, that understanding the grace of God here. So Warren Wearsby writes this, giving is not something we do, but something we are. Giving is a way of life for the Christian who understands the grace of God. So the implication, the application is that stewardship isn't just about money. It's about everything. It isn't just my treasure. It's my time. It's my talents. And there's a vast difference between stewardship and ownership then in this matter. Here's something maybe you don't think about, but it's rights versus responsibilities. It's independence versus interdependence. It's unaccountable versus accountable. So the question that I have for you is this. What about the stewardship of the grace of God within you? What are you doing to develop and nurture and feed and increase the spiritual life and the gifts and the talents that God has given you? Are you a good steward? That's a real penetrating question for all of us on how do we handle what God's given to us. Paul says this amazing thing. I hope you noticed it again, writing to, about these Christians in Macedonia in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Stewardship. The second principle is that of sacrifice. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Macedonians, Paul says, gave out of their affliction. It's probably referring to persecution, which had economic implications and consequences. But they also gave out of deep poverty. Corinth is the rich church in that region. The others were not by any measure of comparison. But they gave out of their deep poverty. I was involved in parachurch ministries for over 30 years. My experience in raising money and financial support has borne out the following. Most of the time, those who had the least gave the most. And those who had the most gave just enough. I can't tell you how many people that supported our ministry that were by no means wealthy in this world, or even in our country. But they gave the most. 
Let me ask you on a scale, don't raise your hand, but on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the idea of sacrifice in our country today? You know, the talk is all about self-fulfillment. It's all about self-actualization. I think much of that is simply old-fashioned selfishness. We've really lost that. You know, a generation of general economic prosperity coupled with a growing individualism, an emphasis on self-esteem and fulfillment, we've lost the meaning of sacrifice. We've been reminded of that in a military service this morning, but what about in this whole thing? A number of years ago, an article appeared in the Washington Post. It was titled, Focus on Self Has Changed the Language of Sacrifice. And in the article, Laura Sessions Step wrote, sacrifice isn't what it used to be. The Judeo-Christian understanding of sacrifice as a personal ongoing obligation to God and the larger community has been replaced by a secular, often temporary altruism, according to charity directors, social scientists, and volunteers. Americans talk about giving back something rather than giving up something. And many say they do good because it makes them feel good. What is sacrifice? It simply means looking out beyond ourselves, beyond our comfort, beyond our security, beyond our needs. And Paul says that out of the Macedonians' affliction and poverty, they gave. Here's another principle, is proportionality. Did you see that in verse 3? They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Paul says the Macedonians gave according to their ability. The wonderful model for this is God himself. You've heard me say it before, that wherever Scripture speaks of God giving, it always says that he gives according to, never out of. Here are some verses that will illustrate. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In Philippians 4, 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So I'll ask you, does it, would it make a difference if a billionaire gave you according to his wealth as opposed to out of his wealth. Of course it would. Out of his wealth could be a buck 98. But if he gave according to it, it would be much different. Now, Scripture teaches us equal sacrifice, but never equal gifts. God has blessed some of you materially more than others and far beyond what he's given to others. That isn't a guilt trip. Rejoice. You should be grateful for all that God has entrusted into your hands. So give thanks for what he's given to you. God is responsible. Remember, you're, you're just the steward. He's the owner. Mark, in his gospel, records an incident in Jerusalem during one of the visits by Jesus and his disciples. And let me read it to you in chapter 12. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. 
Jesus is talking about proportionality here. The rich were just giving their chump change, but this widow sacrificed far beyond whatever was expected of her or required of her. Now let me deal with the issue of the tithe because it always comes up whenever you talk about giving. You know, my personal opinion from Scripture is that the tithe was an Old Testament measurement for giving. It was a tax, really. It was a, a required tax for Jews to support the temple and the Levitical priests who worked there. It was not optional. It was mandatory. And then there were all these other offerings that they were called to give. Someone has figured up it probably amounted to maybe 22% of their income that was expected to be given. I have no problem with people thinking of 10% as a baseline for their giving to the Lord. Statistically, even in evangelical churches, the average is more like about 2% or 2.5% in the latest numbers I've seen. You know, for some of you, 10% is impossible to give. You can't live on the 90%. God hasn't blessed you in order to do that and given you the resources. For others of you, 10% would be an insult to God, even as a beginning point. But that's something between you and God. I don't know what you give. I don't see these giving numbers. Uh, but so that's, that just goes back to what you decide before God that you're going to give. But this leads us to the next guideline and our last one today was very important. It's the principle of motive. The principle of motive. I want you to look again at verses 3 and 4. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know what? I've never had anybody come to me begging to give. I think pastors would probably drop dead of heart attacks if that happened. Uh, these folks begged Paul for the privilege of giving. Wow, so this is why the key in grace giving is not amount, but attitude. It's not a matter of how much, but why. Now, we need to be clear here. God doesn't need your money as if somehow he's deficient without it, that somehow he's dependent upon it. I think the reason why there's so much teaching in the Bible about money is because God wants you. And the danger is that giving becomes a substitute for being. You know, God, you can't have me, but you can have my five bucks a week. You know, that kind of mentality. I have in my files an editorial from years ago uh, written by Philip Yancey, who's just a great writer. Uh, but it was in Christianity Today. And the title of the piece was, Dear Mr. Chicken, Please Send Money. Now, Yancey talked about all the year-end appeals that he was getting from, in the mail from ministries and everything. And the title of his article comes from the Fund Appeal letter, which was addressed to his neighbor, Popeye's Chicken. But, but talking about this Corinthian passage, Yancey says, God loves a cheerful giver, not a reluctant one. Paul declares in this passage, no wonder once we understand giving's value to ourselves, not to the recipients, we can't help sneaking a grin. Giving like love never diminishes us. I think it would be well for us from time to time to evaluate not just what we give, but why we give. In other words, do we think that it gives us some extra credit with God? Is it a way in our minds to bribe God into giving something that giving us something that we want? Is it a way to bargain with God, some quid pro quo there? Or are we trying to impress God or the tellers 
the treasure. Oh, this is a big one, because I know where some of you have come from. Do we give because of guilt? Stewardship, sacrifice, proportional giving, right motives. These are the things that characterize the Macedonian believers. And they're the same four principles that ought to govern the way that you and I give, that we would be responsible givers. More than anything else, and this puts the passage right back into its context here, your practice of giving is a demonstration of your obedience to God because of the grace of God at work in you. If you're an obedient Christian, I'll tell you, you're a generous Christian. Anything other than that is inconsistent with God's calling for his children. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. And I have to confess, to, really, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You are a generous congregation. But oh, that we at Knollwood might be known for our generosity. We would be people that would be known as not only responsible givers, but generous givers. What a testimony to the grace of God which he's lavished upon us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you have blessed us many of us beyond even our expectations. And if we would but a moment, not out of guilt, but out of reality to know how we've been blessed in this country. And we're grateful. You've told us to enjoy everything that you've given to us because it comes from your gracious hand. And so for every dollar, for every uh, possession that we have, we express our profound thanks to you and gratitude for those blessings. May we be a grateful people because of those things. But then, God, you also hold us accountable. And one day we'll give an account for all that we've done with what you've entrusted to us. And so while we are so grateful for all you've given to us, we also want to be people who give generously. Lord, you alone receive the honor and the glory when we do that. So, Lord, would you be at work in our lives? that we would give because of the grace that's been given to us. And would you then continue to use what we gift, uh, give here at Knollwood and give to other ministries that many of us support, Lord, that those gifts would be multiplied by you and used for your glory and your kingdom purposes. So thank you. In Christ's name, amen.